That's a joke. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Is it fair to say that we need to be prepared for the days ahead of us? In other words, there's a lot of chaos going on out there. We don't, we don't even know what's right, wrong, up, down, which bathroom to use. We're really confused right now in this country. Really confused. And more than ever, we have to have a foundation of truth. Truth matters. Now, I've been talking about this for years. You know, I told you guys when I was in uh, Hastings, I spent 12 weeks on the Hastings College campus arguing with college students and professors of whether truth existed. They would say, make claims like, you know, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Now, there's a problem in that statement. My rebuttal was, so you're telling me that it is absolutely true that there is no absolute truth. And they'd be like, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's how dumb we've gotten in society. That was a professor, right, teaching the class. Not the student. I understand the student. We're confused. We don't know which way's up. We don't know where to go. We don't know what to turn next. And here's the reality of it. We don't even know what we believe. We kind of got some beliefs. We got some ideas. And if we do know what we believe, we certainly don't know why we believe it. Because we're focused on one thing and one thing only right now. This is the direction that we are going, the area of healing. Why it matters. Because we're sick. we got a problem. I don't just mean physically. I do mean spiritually as well. We're sick in the head. Have you, is anybody else tired of hearing about mental health? Like, you need a mental health day. What does that mean? A day off? Like, what are you, what are you getting at? You know, we just, we're, we're all about this thing. We've become victims of society. We've become victims, and we wear these things as badge of honor. As if, like, oh, I have depression. Okay, get over it. I mean, there's some serious cases out there, don't get me wrong. But the thing is, we act like, oh, finally, I got mine. That's the problem. Because you think about it as a body of believers, what should the church do as a society, as a group, as an individual, as a unit, more so than anything else. Stop looking like they do. Stop talking like they do. Stop acting like they do. You know, when you look at the nation of Israel, what was the one thing about them that God has said is that you are a a nation of kings and priests before me. Be thou separated from everybody else. Don't marry inside of those tribes. Don't act like them. Hey, if they come and attack you on the Sabbath, what do you do? You honor the Sabbath. Don't eat that food. Don't do those things. I want you different than every other nation out there. Now, there's a whole thing that's going on in the background there. The bottom line is is there was something that should have been unique about the nation of Israel. And when there was, guess what? They did really well. They thrived. But when there wasn't, That's when judgment came, because they chased after the bales. They did all the things that they weren't supposed to do. And where are we as the body of Christ today? We look like the church, or the the, the world. We sound like the world. We We make the same justifications they do, because we act like there is no absolute truth. Why? Because we're moved by what we see and what we hear. Your belief in gravity doesn't make it real. Your belief in, in uh, the, the, the planets don't make them real. Your belief in Santa doesn't make him real. Your belief in God doesn't make him real. He is or he is not. There is no in-between. So it comes back down to if God is real, then what is his character? And that is what we've been focused on. And inside of that character, we find these truths. Number one, we see in Hebrews 10, 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That is either a true statement or it is not. 
If you grew up with grandparents, I did not, okay? My grandmother lived in Detroit. That's a long ways from this area. I didn't get up there very often. But the one thing that I always knew, that when I got to grandma's house, whatever was in that fridge belonged to me. I didn't have to ask. Well, she had a few things in there that didn't belong to me. Things that made the night go easier when grandsons were in town. But, but be that as it may. I didn't have to ask. Like, my kids today are always like, hey, can I have a snack? Can I have a cookie? Can I have a candy bar? Can I have whatever stuff they're not supposed to have? Answer most of the time is no, you may not. But what about a grandma's? Why are you bothering me with these silly questions? Get whatever you want. That's the way it works. What if it's true of God? If God has promised something, then all we have to do is receive it. It's there. We just have to take it. We have no problem in the area of salvation, but anything that goes with it, we struggle with. Look at Psalm 103, verse 1. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and don't forget His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from destruction. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. And who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. What would happen if we stopped just believing He forgave all our iniquities and we started believing all the other parts that went along with that? What would happen? How would we act? Would we act different? Would it impact the way that we carry our lives throughout the rest of our time here on earth? If that verse is true. That's what we have to begin to look at. So last week I introduced you to a word. I'm going to introduce you to a new one this week. The word covenant. Understanding what it is and what it isn't. Covenant is basically a formal, solemn, binding agreement between one or more parties. Something that is holding two people's feet to the fire. We use the term contract, but essentially it's the same thing. There's a reason two parties sign it, because we're both agreeing to the terms of it. So there is a conditional and an unconditional. A conditional covenant is where both parties have a part to play to come to an end result. I'll do this, you'll do that, here's the result. An unconditional one is made by somebody on behalf of somebody else. So there are two parties involved, but the beneficiary gets it no matter what, because this person has promised it. And so when we look at these two different things, and we look at these ideas of covenants, we looked at this list. Going through it, the Edenic, Adamic, Noach, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and the New, looking at these and saying, okay, God, if you have said these things, and these are covenants that we can see in Scripture, there are more, but these are the ones that we can just really quickly go through, which one of these were conditional and which one of these were unconditional. So we put this list together based on what we knew. We knew that the Edenic and the Mosaic covenant had strings attached, that both people had to play a part in it, and if one of them broke it, then the covenant was null and void, so to speak. The mosaic is the easiest to understand because essentially what happened is God went to Moses and says, Moses, here are the things about this covenant. You, I will be your God. You will be my people. If you keep all of my commandments, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be cursed. Do you agree to these terms? Moses took the covenant and said, Israel, what do you think? And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Done. Sacrifice made. Covenants ratified. Now they are in covenant with God. They're God's covenant people. All they, they had to do was keep the commandments. You guys ever seen that, that video? It was, it was done back in the 70s, but they did it again, where they sat a child in a room, and they gave him one marshmallow. And they said, now, you can eat that. It's up to you. But if you wait 15 minutes, we'll give you another one. You'll get two marshmallows. You guys ever seen this? You guys know what I'm talking about? 
Really? You guys don't spend enough time on YouTube, apparently. Thank you. I knew somebody did. And what's fascinating by it, this was done by, I think it was Stanford or one of those super smart schools, because they wanted to see if a child could basically not self-gratify. Could you delay your gratification to get a better outcome for 15 minutes? You might find this hard to believe, but the vast majority of the kids ate the marshmallow. Right away. I know there's two, but i got to have it now. The interesting part about that was, is that the ones who waited, they studied them for the next 20 years, and those were the ones who were financially secure, had good jobs, went to college and got good grades and stuff. Why? Because they could delay what they want now for what they really want in life. That doesn't mean if you ate the marshmallow, you know, you're bound to determine to live in a van down by the river or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, it was interesting when you watched that. Now, here's the thing. It was clearly laid out to these young people. I'll give you this marshmallow, but if you'll just wait 15 minutes, how long is 15 minutes? Not that much time. I'm going to give you two. There was another study that they did where it was interesting when you watched this, they, they threw a bunch of coins into a circle. And they basically said, you get to keep whatever you grab. And it was a complete free-for-all. Everybody is fighting, reaching, and all of that. The next time they did it, they segmented them off, and they said, if you'll wait 15 minutes, whatever falls into your area, you get to keep. How many people you think moved and ran to get the coins? None of them did, because they knew they just had to wait 15 minutes, and it was locked in. This is mine. It belongs to me. It's already in my little section. There's nothing you could do to change it. So imagine what happens with the nation of Israel. Like, hey, all you got to do is keep my commandments. You're going to be blessed. But if you don't, you'll be cursed. And we sit here and we're like, why couldn't you just do that? I don't understand. The reality is, is we do it too. God, I know this is what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. I know you hear me say that a lot, but I don't think you get it. That's the world we live in. God, I know you said this, and your promises are true, and you are faithful to your word. But I don't think I really believe that right now, so I'm just going to do this instead. You guys like my big water jug? This is where we are. This is where we have gone as a people. What happens if we just simply believe what God's word is? He, has, he who promises is faithful. He's always fulfilled his promises. We are literally living our lives waiting for the countdown of the day where he fulfills his promise in what? The rapture of the church and the return of Christ. We have no problem holding off for that. We live it. We talk about it all the time. But right here and right now, nope. Nope, doesn't count. Not the same. Not the same thing. We justify our bad behavior. So coming out of this covenant, I want to talk about another word here. In order to do that, I'm going to begin to lay a foundation today. It's going to be very important, but I want to show you something. I want to introduce you to a guy named Robert Young. Here's a picture of him, I think. There you go. He came out with the translation of the Bible, and I'm going to read out of this, and this is why I want you to understand this. Young's literal translation of the Holy Bible. This was done back in the 1800s. And so basically, it was 1862, somewhere in there. It was a Scottish publisher that put this thing out. And this guy was a self-taught individual who was very proficient in ancient languages. Very, very smart young man. Not the same today. You have to understand, like, that time period, there were some incredibly smart human beings. Have you ever seen the eighth grade graduation test in America from back then? from like the early 1900s, we all fail. I don't even, I didn't understand but every other word. I don't know how these eighth graders figured this out. 
And so what he did is he put a literal translation that was basically a literal attempt to preserve the tense and the word usage inside of the original Greek and the Hebrew writings because he thought the way many English translations did, and, and is, there is truth to this, is that they uh, take the literal translation and try to apply what they thought they maybe meant by it. Because if you've ever studied foreign languages of every kind, not every word translates very easily. In fact, we were discussing this this morning. It's not every word is a word-for-word translation to another language. So what he did is he tried to take the original Greek and the original Hebrew and just make it as literal as what it actually said. And so in that case, sometimes things read a little different. I want to show you an example of this. Let's look at John 1.1. And the New King James, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you get into the Young Literal, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Oh, boy, that sounds exactly the same, doesn't it? You were hoping for something more. But let's go down to verse 14. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But here it says, The Word became flesh and did tabernacle among us. Now that's different. And why does that matter? And why use the word tabernacle? Do you use the word tabernacle? No. Thus, you don't know what it means. But to tabernacle means to dwell among. So he took the literal translation and put it in there, where we've taken some sort of a meaning behind it and put it in there. You guys see the difference? Why does that matter? Well, it matters because when he says he did tabernacle among us, brings in the idea of something that was very important to the Jewish people. And that is known as the seven feasts, the festivals that they they celebrate, one of which is the Feast of Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. So now, let's look at Isaiah 53, because this is where we're building upon. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But in the young literal translation, this is what it says, Surely our sickness he hath borne, and our pains he hath carried away, and we have esteemed him plagued, smitten of God, and afflicted. There's a big difference there, isn't there? Because what can you do up here? Well, griefs. He's taken away my children. You're driving me nuts. I don't know about anybody else. I know the Bible says the children are a blessing from the Lord. My kids try to prove that that is not true at times. But you could say, well, anything that grieves me, anything that makes me sad. But what does it say literally? He has borne our sickness, our pains. He carried them. So just like when did Jesus tabernacle among the people? At his birth, at his incarnation. When was this done? And is this true? Is what we've got to begin to look at. So this is a part of what we call the atonement passage. Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12 is a passage about Messiah. Some will say that it is the uh, forbidden word, or the forbidden passage that Jews aren't allowed to read. Only rabbis do it and they interpret it and all that kind of stuff. But the thing is, is we have to understand this. Is healing in the atonement? Because if it is, that's crucial to our understanding of what God's promise is. The second part is, we don't know what atonement is. It's a word we don't use. And so we have to start there. So the word atonement, what does it mean? It's an English word that denotes the making to be at one, a reconciling of persons who have been at variance. And in the Old Testament, it signifies a sin which is covered or expiated or the wrath of God being converted. Or averted, not converted, averted. In other words, this is a covering that has taken place on behalf of somebody of which the sacrifice 
and the one making the sacrifice are intermediating for the behalf of some people. And now this thing is being atoned, it's being covered, it's, it's got a covering over it. And so in order to understand this passage, we have to begin to look at these festivals of what they are and why they matter. Primarily, the Day of Atonement. And so here we go. We have got, I've showed you this before, I've taught through this, my wife has taught through this on, uh, well, it was Tuesday nights or the summer with the ladies. So some of this is going to be familiar. But there essentially are seven festivals that are aligned by God, that God has said, you will do this perpetually for all your generations. You've got the first three, the middle one, and then the last three. That equals seven for those of you that went to public school. You've got Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. 50 days after that, you've got the Feast of Pentecost, which is in what we see in Acts chapter 2. And then after that, you've got the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Sukkot. These happen, we'll be going into that uh, season here very quickly, sometimes in March or April, uh, just kind of depends on the year, where Passover uh, will begin. What do we celebrate? We celebrate Easter. Nothing wrong with that, but we are missing out on something if we don't look at this. What was Passover and how did Jesus fulfill it? We know Jesus fulfilled it at His death, burial, and resurrection. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of that. Just understand that that is what happened. Then what happens? He said, I want you to wait until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That took place here. So we know that these four, prophetically speaking, have been fulfilled. But what about these last three? Well, you've got the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonements, and the Tabernacles. Now, here's the thing. Because He fulfilled these in His first coming, we believe that He is going to fulfill these in His second coming, and most people believe that He will arrive at the Feast of Trumpets. Remember, it talks about the twinkling of eye at the sound of the horn, the dead in Christ for all that kind of stuff. We believe that this will be right in this area. Why? One of the names that is known about the Feast of Trumpets, understanding this, um, this is a little sidebar, but just so you're following along, is that... What, in order for the Feast of Trumpets to be inaugurated or to be started, it has to be done by the Sanhedrin or the leaders of Israel. In order to do that, it has to have two witnesses that come to them both times when they see the new moon. This is crucial. So it doesn't start until the new moon has been seen by two individuals, and then they come there, and then they will declare and blow the trumpets announcing the start of the feast. So when does that happen? Oh, at the arrival of the new moon. Well, when do you see the new moon? Well, if it's a clear night, it could be at any point. But if it's cloudy or something like that, it does not start. Just because you know the new moon's out there doesn't mean it starts until it is seen. So one of the names that is at least speculated that this is known to us is the day and hour which no one knows. Because we don't know when it's going to start. It's, there's a couple of things that must take place. But we're going to focus our attention on the Day of Atonement. And in order to understand Christ's fulfillment in this, and if Isaiah 53 is a reference to the atoning work of what Christ did, we have to understand what did it mean to them. So this is going to get a little, uh, forgive the term, academic, just so you can understand it. But what we have going on here between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement is we have what's known as the 10 Days of Awe. It's a time of repentance. We get in here, and we get all of this time going up here to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and it's a time where there's fasting, there's a time of where they're, they're weeping, they're spending time before the Lord. They are in preparation for this day to arrive. So let's look at this in Leviticus chapter 23, everybody's favorite book in the Bible, Leviticus, and we're going to spend a little time here. 
Leviticus chapter 23, uh, verse 26. I say that right? 23? It is. Verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. And any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls and on the ninth day of the month of that evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Now, basically, what happens if one doesn't afflict his soul? Which is basically what I was talking about. They go into a time of, of fasting, a time of weeping. There's a time of they talk sackcloth and ashes. It is a time that they are reflecting upon where they have missed God. Remember, we're talking about the keeping of the commandments. This is what we're focused on. So this is a big deal. But it is a Sabbath rest. In other words, you do no work. There's only one person working that day, and I'll get there in a minute. So, this goes by a couple different names. It's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Shabbat Shabbaton, because it's the Sabbath of Sabbaths, okay? Uh, It's considered the holiest of all the days of rest. So, there's a couple different things, but the biblical practice is what I want you to see. Because it's a day of affliction, it's a day of both individual atonement and national atonement for the nation of Israel. So let's jump to Leviticus chapter 16. We're going to go to verse 1. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. Remember, there were certain way things had to be done. It cost Aaron's sons their life because they were not obedient to what God had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body, and he shall be girded with a linen sash, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel, two kids of the goat, as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle and meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord at the other, uh, and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offered as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, and let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil and shall put the incense of on the on the fire before the Lord and the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is the testimony lest he die he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering for which the uh, it's for the people bring his blood inside the veil do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat so shall he make atonement for the holy place because the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgression for all their sins and so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness there 
There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. He shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, consecrate it from its uncleanness of the children of Israel." And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all the transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. He shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, and he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering, the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was carried or was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls, do no work at all, whether you are a native or in your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you, to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever, and the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as a priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year, and he did as the Lord commanded Moses." Wow. Could you imagine the pressure? Did you catch all the little details? Now, knowing what you know about this, what happens if he skips a step? The high priest will die. If he enters into the Holy of Holies, he will die. This is the pressure on this man. Every year. This is the responsibility of the high priest. To put it in short, he has to make atonement for himself, then make atonement for the nation. That's a lot of pressure. How would you like to be responsible for that? Aren't you glad we are not under this covenant? I mean, that's a lot of details. It's an illustration of what is said in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. It says, for the life of of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now, you might ask me why, and I may not be able to answer that directly, but you know what I can say? It's because God said so. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The blood was given to make a sacrifice to bring atonement to the people. So, let's break this down. Because you've got to understand this. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time in this, but this is not going to be the most exciting sermon you've ever heard in your life. You are not going to go home and be like, boy, that was inspiring today. Because we're going to finish this up next week. Because what we not only have to understand is what did they do, but here's the thing. 
we know that Jesus fulfilled this. So what is the consequences of the Messiah coming and fulfilling this is what we're focused on. But let's get into the backstory. So let's go back, verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time in the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So this comes after the death of two of Aaron's sons. It's in Leviticus chapter 10 where you can see this whole thing go down. But they died because they came in and they just made an offering inside of that. Well, you think, oh, well, we're supposed to make an offering. Not like that. Who prescribes the way in which the offering is to be made? God does. Who prescribes the way in which the priesthood was to act and live? God does. Who prescribed the way the high priest was supposed to perform? God does. Who prescribed the way that the nation of Israel was supposed to perform? God does. Who prescribed the way in which he wants to be worshipped? God does. That means you don't just come to him with any, in any old way. You come to him in the way that he wishes that you do. The emphasis on verse 1 is when one approaches God, it can't be any old way. It has to be in a specific way that God has laid out. And these ordinates, there were consequences to this, as you can see. Go back and read Leviticus 10. Aaron cannot enter the Holy of Holies, and I'll show you this in a minute, any time that he wants, any way that he wants, because the penalty is death. It is very specific in how he is supposed to do this. Why is that? Because inside of there resides the Shekinah glory. The manifest presence of God was inside this holy place. It could only be entered by the high priest on the Day of Atonement after he has made atonement for himself, entering in clean. So let's look at the tabernacle so you guys can get an understanding of what this looks like. This is the camp of Israel. I apologize for the blurry picture. Sometimes they don't blow up very well. But out here, you've got the altar, the brazen altar. And here, you've got the water basin. Again, something they're signifying before you enter into the presence of God. But this is how it would be. They would be camped out on the cardinal directions, and God prescribes all of that. I think it's in the book of Numbers. So they would enter into the gate that always faced the east. They would come in here to the priesthood. They'd bring their sacrifice. The priest would sacrifice that animal. Then he would go and he would cleanse, and he would take the blood inside there, should it be required to do so. There were times that it was, times that it wasn't. Okay? When we get inside of this thing is where you start to see the other side. So as I said, you've got the brazen altar, the brazen laver. You enter in through the door. There's one way in. There's one way out. You've got what's known as the menorah, you've got the table of showbread, and you've got the altar of incense. I read you about all of these things. Every day these priests would go in here, they would continue to fill that up with oil, they would continue to change out the bread certain times, they would eat the bread, it was bread without leaven, and then of course here the altar of incense, they were always burning incense. Why were they doing that? One of the reasons might be because there are a bunch of dead animals out there in blood and it kind of smelled bad. But the other reason is because is God said to do it. Now, on the Day of Atonement... And only that day, there is a veil that separates what's called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, it goes by several names, from the holy place. Any priest could come in here at any time. Your average Joe couldn't, or they weren't supposed to, and that's necessarily the consequence being death, because they would meet here at the gate of the tabernacle many times. But they were to come in here and they would perform their priestly duties. But the high priest, one day a year, after going through everything that we just read about, would enter into the most holy holy place. Now you have to understand something. This veil here was a curtain. They say it was about the width of a man's hand. That's pretty thick, right? Depends on the man. But 
That thing, they say, was somewhere between four and five inches thick. That's a lot of fabric. And they also talk about how there was likely, there, there's no appearance to have been an opening to it that you could just move the curtain and walk through. So many believe that this was a supernatural thing that went on and he would enter into the holy place uh, supernaturally. Now, while the, why this matters is when the priest would burn the incense, he would come here and he would collect the smoke in his hand and he would raise it up. Why do we lift our hands in worship? This is where this comes from. It is not that you're lifting your hands in surrender to God. Okay? That's a good thing, but that's not why. So it has to do with this. Inside of here is what matters. I think I've got another picture, don't I? There you go. You can see these a little bit better. Um, somebody apparently had some claymation going on. I'm not sure. But you can see this is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was very specific on how it was to be designed. On the top, which was known as the mercy seat, so you got two parts of this, okay, were two cherubim, the angels. And this is the throne of God. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant was held the Ten Commandments. You had a jar of manna and Aaron's budding staff. And those are all representative of some different things. And I don't want to get into all of that today. Just understand that that's what's there. But the Shekinah glory sat on this throne. The presence of God was in here and later became inside of the temple. These just get exemplified even more at that point. The bottom line is, is that one day a year, only one day a year, could he go in there. So you guys can kind of visualize what's taking place here. We tend to just glaze over this, but this is important. So let's go to verse 3. It says, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place, with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering, he should put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body, and he shall be girded with a linen sash, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments, therefore take, uh, therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Now again, I don't want to get into all the different offerings and stuff like that. That's not the point. But the high priest was uh, take this bull as a sin offering, which was for unintentional sin, the ram for a burnt offering, which was a sweet savor offering, and then the third one was this proper clothing. It says that they were holy. So first he would have to do what was called as a mikvah, which was a ritualistic bath. It had to be in what was known as living water. So you couldn't go anywhere. Living water is basically moving water. In some way or another, it was an underground stream, a river, or rain, all of which is moving. Stagnant water is not living water. However, if you had a big basin full of stagnant water and one drop of rain hit it, that now water is completely washed clean and is considered living water. And so there were all these things to do, and then he had to get dressed when he got in there. So look at the, this garb. I mean, this thing was, was different. The, the priest always wore some sort of a white tunic, and there was different parts of that. But on this day, he would come in here, and he would put on all of this garb. And what does God said, say about it? That it's holy. What does holy mean? It means to be set apart for a prescribed purpose. In other words, this is not your wear-to-the-movie clothes. This is set apart. It was different. And so again, I don't want to spend all my time going through each and every detail of that. That's not the purpose of this. We can always talk about that. But the bottom line here is, is that it was very, very specific on how he was supposed to enter in. You guys catching that so far? Okay, let's go to verse 6. Aaron shall offer a bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take two goats, present them before the Lord, 
at the door of the tabernacle meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go and as a scapegoat into the wilderness. So the sacrifice for the priest, which started with the bull, the blood of the bull was to make atonement for the high priest and his family. So he's atoning for himself. Then comes the presentation of the sacrifices for the people in which two goats were brought before them. To cast lots literally means to roll the dice to figure out which one is the one for God and which is the scapegoat. Now, if you come on Wednesday nights, we talked about the scapegoat. What is the Hebrew word for scapegoat? It is the Hebrew word for Azazel. Why does that matter? Well, we see in other ancient writings, one being the book of Enoch, is Azazel was one of the angels that fell down and took for himself the daughters of men creating the Nephilim. And he also taught the people a bunch of things that were contrary to God, and thus God brought judgment on them. And we read about the uh, angels in everlasting chains and darkness. Azazel is mentioned in that, that he is under of that. And he was sent into the desert, and there's a whole thing on that. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, and maybe that intrigues you, then maybe come on Wednesday night. I don't know. I'm just saying. Just a free plug. I'm taking advantage of it. So anyway, so the one goat was for Jehovah, and the other goat was for Azazel. Not to be sacrificed, but as a representation of sending this out. Both goats presented alive before God. One is killed, one sent into the wilderness alive. A picture that is following as the shedding of blood came for the removal of Israel's sin. So, verse 11, Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, uh, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire for before the altar of the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that, it is, that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. On the east side, before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So the bull was killed first as a sin offering for the high priest. Then was followed by the burning of incense. A hot coal would be removed from the altar of the sacrifice and brought into the tabernacle. And it was inside that first room of the holy place. It was placed on the altar of incense. And then that fire is what burned the incense, causing a cloud to rise into the holy of holies, which covers the mercy seat. It was the cloud of incense that was believed that kept the high priest alive. I don't know why they believe that, but they do believe it. This came, brings the offering. The blood of the bull was sprinkled seven times over the mercy seat. This is the first time that the high priest enters the holies of holies on this occasion. Now, verse 15. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring his blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of, bull, of, of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And before the mercy seat, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There should be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he goes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. He shall go out of the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on, its, on it 
it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and them, and the head of the goat, and shall send it away to the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to the uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. The atonement for the people consisted of two goats. One was for Jehovah. One was known as a scapegoat as Azazel. So the goat for Jehovah was the sin offering. It's the first goat that was killed. The blood was brought into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled upon the mercy seat. The second time the priest enters into the Holy of Holies, there's a reason for atonement was made that the tabernacle was given in verse 16. The uncleanness of the children of Israel means that they were ceremonially uncleansed. And if you were ceremonially uncleansed, then you could not come in. You couldn't worship. You couldn't do anything. You were now separated from the people until the different things that you had to do to become clean once again has been fulfilled. So the transgressions were deliberate violations of the law. So atonement was made ceremonially for unwitting sins and deliberate violations of the law. Those were the three things that this atoning sacrifice was taken care of. So no man enters the tabernacle until atonement has been made. The high priest has to do this. It's spelled out in verse 18 and 19 that the atonement of the blood and the bull and the goat was atoning for the high priest, his family. The blood of the goat atoned for the sins of the people. And the blood was applied upon the horns of the altar seven times on the altar of sacrifice. It cleansed it and it it sanctified it. Why does that matter? Again, we're looking at this. You can't make sacrifice to God on something that God has rejected. But ceremonially cleansing this has now made this once again holy and set apart. Now, I know this seems like a lot of weird details, and it's like, okay, that's great. But we don't understand. We think sin and uncleanness one and the same, but that's not necessarily true. It was not a sin to touch a dead body. You think about it, I mean, you, you could be walking through the woods and stumble upon one and not even realize it. You may think, man, I can go try to resuscitate them, but if they're dead, you are now ceremonially uncleansed. What have you done wrong? You've not done anything wrong, but you must cleanse once again in order to come into the presence of God, into where God was, and to worship Him. So, we have the goat that was killed. Now we have the goat for Azazel, the one, the live goat that's presented is when he made an end for the atoning of the holy place that the altar, he presents the live goat. So when the blood has been shed... Everything's done. Now it's time for the removal of sins from amongst the people. So he would confess the sins of Israel on this goat. Then came, uh, well, first it would be Israel's iniquities and then their transgression. I should say that correctly. Because iniquities and transgressions are not necessarily the same thing. But specific commandments were known as trans- that violated were known as transgressions. Sometimes you had iniquities which you were unknowingly uh, getting into. The third part was to deal with all of Israel's sin. So we were coming short of the glory of God. The high priest confessed all of Israel's shortcomings and that the Lord demanded uh, basically a payment for this. So iniquities, transgressions, sins that were placed upon the head of the live goat. This is a substitution. Understand that. That's going to matter. Okay. Then it was taken away by a man who was driven out into the wilderness. This goat is known as a scapegoat because it bore the iniquity for Israel and it was sent into the wilderness. Why the wilderness matters is because, remember, that is considered a place of evil, a dark place. It was a a desert, if you will. So, this is done. They should take the goat and now, once it's released, it is done. The term Azazel is only used four times throughout Scripture and nowhere else in the Bible but Leviticus chapter 16. 
So scapegoat, whatever, doesn't make any difference. The bottom line here is that you've got two different things that are going on, and now they're being taken. The sins of the nation of Israel are now put on Azazel, taken out there. There's a lot of things that are out there that talk about, you know, well, what happened? They're talking about a crimson thread that was on there, and it would turn white, and that's how they knew it was done. These are all rabbinic tradition. They talk about how the guy would push the goat off of a cliff, and it would fall apart on its way down. Again, rabbinic tradition is not what Scripture says. doesn't mean it wasn't true. doesn't mean it didn't happen. But you can see the process of which they are going through in order to just get right with God for one more year. Every year this had to happen. Let's look at verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on, and he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall wash his body with water in the holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. He who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterwards he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering, the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire the skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. So the clothing worn by the high priest was put back into the holy place. It was the first room that was in there. Then he would have to mikvah again, ceremonially cleanse himself. Why? Because he'd been in the presence of sin. Then he would get dressed. Then these burnt offerings were offered for himself again, making atonement for himself and the people that were around. The fat would be, be burned, as is always a sweet incense offering. The one who took the goat now has to come in, has to change his clothes, and has to wash himself because he was a part of it. Any remains of the bull or the first goat were taken outside of the camp as a burnt offering. In other words, all of it belongs to God. And then the one burning the remains would have to wash himself and his clothing before he was allowed to come back into the camp. You guys taking notes? Are you catching all this? Okay, good. I hope so. So, verse 29. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you so that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever, and the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as a priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes and holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statue for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord God commanded. Wow. So, again, how grateful are you? We are not under this. Because imagine the pressure and think of what's going on here. What made you unclean before God? Pretty much anything. I mean, anything. And the result of being obedient to God in the worship made you unclean, and thus you had to go through all of these steps. This is the Day of Atonement. This is considered the most holy day in the Jewish calendar. Every single year they had to do this. They took this extremely seriously. Because if at any point in time the high priest messed any of this up, left out a detail, did something wrong, it cost him his life. This is serious. Now, we're looking at the concept is healing in the atonement. We have to understand what atonement meant. So what does it mean? What we see here is we're seeing that atoning is the covering up of sins and a substitution has now been put in the place of the people. And that substitution is taken care of. But God is now satisfied and thus, for once again, the nation of Israel can enter into the presence of God and worship God as he sees fit. Do you guys see that so far? 
I know this is a lot of stuff that you did not come here looking for today, but the bottom line is you have to understand this because if we're going to see is healing in the atonement, we have to understand atoning from what? And we're also looking at what did Messiah do? And with that, what does that mean? What if I told you that everything God is doing? If you believe that is true, that means that we have already received what God has given us. All we have to do is walk in that reality. And if we're not, we should begin to question. So, same bad time, same bad channel next week. I'll finish this part up, okay? It'll be a little more interesting, I promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.